podcast uses profanity and topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Welcome back to Hell on Heels podcast. I'm Bryce. I'm Brianna. I'm Amanda. And welcome to episode 14. We're making our way up to 20, slowly but surely. We're almost, we're almost a mid-teenager. We are, we are a teenager at, for sure. We're like in the rebellious stages. We're angsty. Yes. Yep. Oh, all right. How are you guys? I know we just talked yesterday, but any developments since yesterday that are exciting and new? Nothing new. Um, the doctor told me I was interesting today. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, Basically, I guess that I'm a medical anomaly because of all the shit that's wrong with me. Mainly because of the ulcerative colitis and the uh, chemical pneumonia that scarred my lungs. They're just, um, I guess they don't get a lot of that. So I wouldn't say you're interesting. Well, I guess for him, you're interesting. Yeah. The nurse called me neat was her exact word. She was like, you're neat. And I'm like, I'll take it. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Sure. That's new. Haven't heard that one. That's not usually a four-letter word that I'm called, but I'll take it. Well, I mean, how old was this nurse? It feels like an older terminology. Like, that was so neat or rad. I would say probably five to ten years older than me. Oh. Not that much older. Bad. Interesting. Interesting. All right, well, I don't think I have any uh, updates other than the dog's been driving me nuts all day because I had today off and she's been up my ass. She did Please. snuggle. It was very sweet of her to snuggle me this morning, though. Oh. So also, she's a sour patch pup. Oh, she's fucking insane. <laughs> um, we have started for my little sister's benefit because she's only nine. Um, we have started calling her the Maziac. Instead of the crackhead. So, he's the Maziac. I love it. Um, but yeah, she's she's hilarious because her ears are pointed straight up. Whereas most mini Aussies ears are flopped down. <laughs> and uh, she gets teased relentlessly by my family about her ears that I think are so stinking cute. <laughs> so she has buck ears. Yeah, they're straight up. Where is oh. she? Oh, hold on. She's in here. Let me grab her. Come here, kid. Also, you're not supposed to be under there, so... Come here. I wonder if they're oh. going to stay that way or if they're going to flop eventually. Yeah. Oh, don't don't kiss me. Oh, hey. my God. Oh. Look That's at him. Really She's yeah. like the, the Dumbo of Australian Shepherds. I wouldn't <laughs> call her a Dumbo because her ears aren't abnormally big. They're just perky. They're just perky, huh? Oh my god, she's so big. She has doubled in size. It doesn't feel like she has, but like I know she has. She's only gained a pound or two. Really? Uh Uh-huh. She's getting tall. It looks like she's, yeah. I was going to say, it looks like she's taller and a lot longer, too, than she was. Are you longer? Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Like being examined, apparently. So are her ears going to stay like that or 
I, I don't know, because when she was born, they weren't like this. They were floppy, and they've perked up. They're fucking wonderful. Jesus Christ, stop. She is wonderful. I think her ears are adorable. Um, she will never be a show dog because of it, but I had no intentions of making her a show dog anyways, so. All right, well. I'm sorry. Bree, are you ready to kick us off? I am. I'm actually really excited to present to y'all this story. Um, Okay, I'll just uh, share with y'all my first paragraph. Three women were brutally murdered in 1960. Mildred Lindquist, Frances Murphy, and Lillian Oding at Starved Rock State Park in LaSalle County, Illinois. Described as the O.J. Simpson trial of its day by many sources, this is the story of the murder at Starved Rock. There is still a lot of controversy over this case because a man named David Recuglia created a documentary about this case to try and shed light on what exactly happened 62 years ago, published in late 2021. Anthony Recuglia, David's father, was one of the prosecutors on the case, and David says in the documentary that he grew up as this trial went on and has since been curious about it. For those of you interested in this case and would like to learn more about it, my goal for this podcast is to try and explain both sides here, all the controversy that this case has had over six years and will continue to have until some ends, which I will get into later. Here are the facts of the case. On March 14, 1960, The bodies of three middle-aged women from Chicago were discovered in St. Louis Canyon at Starved Rock State Park. They drove from their homes for a scheduled four-day holiday. They registered for two rooms, dropped off their luggage, and decided to have lunch and a walk through the Wondrous Park. They figured that it would serve them well considering they were traveling all day. The first sign of trouble occurred that evening when George Oding tried calling his wife at the lodge on Monday night. She had promised him she'd call, but when she didn't, he got worried. A staff member reassured him, and he soon went to bed thinking she would call in the morning. However, when that call never came, he called the hotel once again, and a staff member mistakenly told him he saw the three women at breakfast before they ventured off for a morning hike. That night, a snowstorm hit and several inches of snow covered up vital footprints and bloodstains that were crucial in this investigation. George Oding once again telephoned the lodge on Wednesday morning, but his wife and his friends could still not be located. Concerns, the staff members entered the women's room to find that the beds had not been slept in, nor had their suitcases been unpacked. They had been missing for roughly 40 hours at this point. Bill Danley, a local newspaper reporter, got word of the missing women and ventured off in the cold, snow-packed roads to see if he could uncover anything when he saw a young boy with his friends playing near the west entrance of the park. When the boys told him of the bodies, he called the lodge and law enforcement officers soon gathered. Now, Starved Rock State Park was located in a smaller town and county in Illinois, so when this hit the newspapers. It was the talk of the town. The three women, by the way, you can go ahead and look at the first two pictures, I believe. Um, The first picture should just be the three women, and the second picture is a picture of the 
two women. I labeled them from left to right. So I believe it's Francis and Mildred, maybe Mildred and Francis. But that's a picture um, that was on their camera, which I will later describe. The three women were mutilated and laid on their backs under a small ledge. Their lower clothing had been torn away and their legs were spread open. Each of them had been beaten profusely in the head and two of the bodies were tied together with heavy twine. They were covered with blood and their exposed legs were blackened with bruises. When state police arrived, they began an immediate search of the area. Except for the grounds of the overhang where the bodies were found, the entire cannon was covered in half a foot of snow. Once it was removed, the signs of a struggle were apparent. Mrs. Murphy's camera was found about 10 feet from the victims. It was smeared with blood and its strap was broken. They also found the women's bloody binoculars. Nearby, LaSalle County's state attorney, Harlan Warren, found a tree limb that was streaked with blood, which was determined to be one of the murder weapons. The other two were the camera and binoculars held by two of the three women. A trail of gore led them to speculate that the women had been killed deeper in the canyon with their bodies being dragged and positioned under the rock ledge. Wait, that's that's fucked up. So like they were put there like on display by the killers, what that sounds like to me? Yeah, I believe it's the fifth picture. I actually have a picture of um, the overhang of the rock ledge. Um, they all get into that kind of specific later in the story, but essentially, yes, the women, the bodies of the women were dragged from the, from where they were killed to this rock ledge. The victims' bodies were taken to Hulse Funeral Home in, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Ottawa where the pathologist and county coroner did a thorough autopsy. The limitations of medical supplies and techniques at the time failed to show any sign of rape, although it is speculated that the women were molested. The doctors were able to determine the time of death as shortly after their meal at the lodge. The investigation went nowhere as police investigators had no motive, although they had ruled out robbery because the women had left their wallets and jewelry behind in their rooms. Although the continued scrutiny in the newspapers surrounding this case kept pressure on police officials to make progress, frustrated Warren put that frustrated Warren purchased a microscope and began research on the items the women had left behind. This revealed that the killer used two types of twine, a 20-ply cord and a 12-ply cord. He chose two detectives, Bill Dummett and Wayne Hess, to start the search for the source of the twine. The documentary describes these two men as the typical good cop-bad cop duo. Dummett was described as a corrupt police officer by other law enforcement officials. He was also known to be secretive about his investigations. In September of 1960, Warren and his deputies found that both types of twine were used in the kitchen of the lodge to wrap food. They tracked down the manufacturer and found that the twine used to bind the victims was, without a doubt, the same twine used in the kitchen. A number of lodge staff had access to this twine. 
So the employees at the lodge were given polygraph tests and all passed. However, Warren had to wonder if these tests get if the if these tests given had been accurate. He hired a specialist from a Chicago firm and found all the employees who had been working during the week of the murder. Many employees, about a dozen, had come in and passed once again. However, Bill Dummett brought in a former dishwasher named Chester Otto Weger, and everything drastically changed. Weger completed his polygraph test, and Warren noticed the examiner's face had gone pale. He turned to Warren, and the two deputies quietly said, That's your man. So was there a reason that they were drawn to him, or were they just, they found him when they were, like, interviewing everybody else? Well. I'm not 100% sure. I know that a couple sources that I said said that a couple sources that I read said that Dummett had recognized Weger from a previous investigation, but nothing really came of it the first time that they polygraphed these employees. But I'm not 100% sure. I just know that during his polygraph test, it kind of, I don't know, he he just wasn't the typical man. He wasn't acting like all of the other employees were at the gotcha. time. So there was something fishy about him. Yeah. I got you. Weger was 21 at the time, slim built but tall, with a wife and two young children. He had worked at Starved Rock until that summer as a dishwasher. Several employees said that he came into work that day, and shortly after the women disappeared, there were some scratches on his face that seemed suspicious. And I'm not 100% sure if he actually came in to work with these scratches or if he had them maybe after his lunch break or something like that. The documentary states that one of the women tried to fight back and could have left marks on the perpetrator's face. Truster had these marks on his face that he claims were from shaving, but, oh, I just lost my place. But the marks on his face were inconsistent with the story. Warren hounded down on Uyghur and Uyghur happily cooperated with him. He surrendered a piece of buckskin jacket that he owned that had some suspicious dark stains on it to be examined, although the authorities were never able to determine whether this was from a human being. In spite of this, many sources say that the blood was in fact tested at that time in 1960, and it did come back as blood from a human. However, the documentary specifically states that this blood was tested at the time the documentary was being made, and it was not, in fact, human blood, but pig's blood. It goes into more detail about how there was very little blood on the jacket itself. If you remember, there was everywhere at the scene of the crime and the brutal beatings of these women, the perpetrator would have had blood all over him, which I don't understand exactly because this was the evidence that put Chester Weger at the scene of the crime, considering he had human blood on his coat. Did they determine whose blood it was on his coat? Given the... Oh, well, that's actually my next sentence. 
Anyways, back to the trial. In 1960, the blood on his jacket could not be matched to a specific victim because they did not have the sufficient instruments back then to test it. Warren also asked Uyghur to submit to further polygraph tests, and again, Uyghur agreed. He was, he was given an entire series of tests, and some sources say that he failed all of them. Some sources say that he passed all of them. Some sources say that he failed some and passed some, so I'm not 100% sure about that. But Chester's alibi was that he was home alone in the basement of the lodge writing a love letter to a woman other than his wife. Oh. Later, he tries to change his alibi saying he went to get a haircut in the city, but this cannot be confirmed. By you him. never change your alibi. You got to stick with it. Yeah, yeah, always a bad idea. Unless it's like, oh, well, I also like did this if you're adding a detail, but you don't full on change it. Yeah. Well, this could have been because maybe he had met with his lawyer and his lawyer said, oh, that's not a good alibi. So you got to change it. You got to like make it, you know, so that some people saw you. But his first alibi was just that he was alone in the basement lodge. So anyways, the jacket was determined to be stained with blood and Warren put Uyghur under constant surveillance by the state police. Warren began looking into Uyghur's past and similar crimes within the area. Dummett, the investigator, came across a reported rape and robbery that took place about a mile from the lodge in 1959. By the way, I'm pretty sure the third picture is just a picture of Uyghur, of uh, Chester Uyghur, so you, you can look at that as well. Um... Dummett came across a reported rape and robbery that took place about a mile from the lodge in 1959. Dummett showed the woman a series of mugshots to which she began to scream at the one of Chester Uyghur. Okay. The documentary does not explain much in the case of these mugshots, but does go into depth of the lineup that was presented. This lineup, I'm going to let y'all comment on it and tell me what you think. So go ahead and go to the fourth picture. I feel like this is an unfair lineup. I was going to say, I thought there was supposed to be some kind of similarity in the lineup. There's, there's like no similarity. The, yeah, exactly. none of them are the same height. None of them have, I mean, some of them might have the same color, hair color. But none of them look anything like one another. No. One like of the them guy in the center stands out so much. Definitely, yeah. The guy in the center? Wait, which one is the guy in the center? The tall one? Tall, balding? No, that's not him. Mm. Let me see real fast. Also, the guy on the end, on the right-hand okay. side. On the, the guy on the, the right-hand side is Chester Uyghur. I just feel like the three of them look like they're older men. And then you've got the random guy in the middle who looks like he was very much forced into this and he's pouting. And then you've got the young kid on the end. Like, there's a very big age gap between oh. all of them. Exactly. Yes. Two of the guys are like, I would consider them elderly. And then the guy in the middle, honestly, to me, he looks like a cop that they he grabbed. Does. He's like, oh, hey, detective so-and-so, we're one guy short. Go get in this lineup. He is the intern. <laughs> Probationary <laughs> officer. <laughs> He's like, this is the hazing that you guys do. Yeah. But nothing about this seems fair or credible. Exactly. It only showed women, it only showed men 
not women. It only showed men who looked nothing like Chester Weaker and therefore nothing like that of the man who raped her. Some were many years older, some were bigger, some were smaller. The documentary talks about how in 1960, there was a huge weight on Warren's shoulders to get this case solved. It was election year, and if he were able to solve the biggest case in the state, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that he would get reelected. However, with this positive identification, Warren was forced to wait because he did not want to jeopardize his chances of getting reelected. With all this time and energy on the case, there was little time to focus on his re-election. He decided that if he arrested Uyghur on the rape and murder charges before his election, defense attorneys would simply say that he had done so as a stunt to keep his job, to, keep, to stay being state attorney. So he left Uyghur under surveillance. Unfortunately, Uyghur lost the election by nearly 3,500 votes, but he knew he still had time in office to pursue the case against Uyghur. Warren this could like a vendetta. Like, he's just well, taking his anger out on this guy. Well, that's kind of like one side of the story, too. Um, the documentary says that to, well, to this day, I want to say it was 2006 when... Um, when Warren passed, I'm not maybe 2016, but the documentary said in the documentary, Warren was, um, what's the word? Interviewed. Warren was interviewed and he said that, you know, to this day, he still believes that Chester Uyghur is guilty of this crime. So there are many sides to the story as well. Keep in mind. I'm just, as I said, I'm trying to lay out all of the basic facts. And yeah. Um, Warren obtains an arrest warrant for Uyghur for the 1959 rape. He believed that with all the evidence, Uyghur might confess. He made a detailed plan with his deputies on how to interrogate Uyghur before confronting him with the murder charges. When Dummett and Hess arrived at Uyghur's house, they simply asked him to come down to the courthouse as they wanted to ask him questions. They made no mention of the arrest warrants. The next day, on November 16, 1960, Deputy Hess's official statement was, quote, When Bill Dummett stepped out of the back room in the state attorney's office to show Mr. and Mrs. Uyghur to the door so they could go home, I could see something was bothering Chester. I said, Chester, why don't you tell me about it? There are just two of us here. Just tell me about it. He said, all right, I did it. I got scared. I tried to grab their pocketbook. They fought and I hit them. The pocketbook that Uyghur claimed he tried to take was actually Miss Murphy's camera. And Here he admitted is, this to a police officer, a detective. Mm -hmm. like just a the two move. of them. Just it feels the like two of us. Please. It feels like <laughs> something that could potentially have been made up by the police officer. Well, okay, so just want to point out real fast between there are just the two of us here. There is a dot dot dot. Just tell me about it. So he could have said more. But that's all I kind of got from records and all of that. 
So here is what Uyghur said. Tell me if it lines up with the story. Uyghur claimed that he only wanted to rob the three women. He approached them and tried to steal what he thought was a purse but turned out to be a camera. He asked the women if they would walk further into the canyon to give him time to escape. The women agreed to this and he followed them to an opening in the cave. Then he threatened them with a tree branch. He then tied them up with the twine. As he was walking away, Frances managed to get free and ran up behind him to attack him with her binoculars. He then used the tree branch to beat her to death. Going back into the cave, he noticed the other two women stood up, even though they were still tied with the twine, and they attacked him and scratched his face. He then murdered them and hid the bodies, seeing an airplane fly overhead. He wanted to make the crime look like it was related to sex to throw off authorities, which is why he removed their undergarments. I don't know. Like in the beginning, I was kind of like, okay, I can, I can kind of get behind this. And then the, the farther the story went, like the further along he got in the story, the more I was like, really? Yeah. That's what happened? Like that feels thought out. Like he had to really think about what his excuse was. Like, so their undergarments to throw off the police. Exactly. During one of the, exactly. I mean, I said at like practically the very beginning when I was explaining this case that that the police officials ruled out a robbery at the very beginning because these women didn't have anything on them. I mean, it's possible that Uyghur did mistake um the leather oh I forgot to mention that but the leather case that uh their camera I forget who was carrying the camera but one of the woman's cameras was in as a purse but it's very unlikely also at that if he was really trying to rob them why wouldn't he have just taken all their stuff still yeah like he might as well have he's already killed them at that point like I know that's morbid, but most people would unless it was like a full state of panic that he went into. During Chester's confession, he was asked why he had dragged the bodies under the overhang in St. Louis Canyon. Uyghur said that he had spotted a small airplane flying over the park. He said he was afraid that it was a state police plane, so he moved the bodies so they could not be seen from above. And Bryce, that answers your question from earlier. Nonetheless, this was the story against Uyghur that ultimately put him in jail. Minutes later, the confession was transcribed and signed by Uyghur himself. Later, Chester, I go through Uyghur and Chester interchangeably, but it's Chester Uyghur, he, that's his name. Later, Chester accused Dummett of threatening him with, quote, riding a thunderbolt, aka the electric chair. Dummett denied making the statement, but another officer confirms this threat. Several sources say that Uyghur confessed many more times to the murder over the next few days. The next day after his confession, on November 17, 1960, he participated in a reenactment at the scene of the crime. However, a lot of sources also say that this reenactment doesn't really line up with what could have what happened. It doesn't really line up with the position of the bodies and all of that. On November 19th, 
he recanted his statement and said that he only confessed because he was threatened and beaten. One source says this was after his first meeting with his court-appointed attorney, and he changed his story to claim his innocence. He stated that Dummett and Hess coerced his confession by threatening him with a gun. And this is from this source specifically. Um, there, there are so many sources that say that he was threatened with so many different things, it's hard to point out what or what not. That's also kind of the the backlash against it is that he kind of changed his story so many times. I mean, first he changed, you know, his alibi, he changed his he changed what he was threatened with. It it just it doesn't really add up. So a lot of people think that yes, he is lying, that he he's guilty of something, but the stories don't really add up for him to be guilty of this murder. I don't know. Um, going back to the story. It is sketchy, though, that he can't get his story straight. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. Like, you can't, like, at this point, if you are guilty of something, you're probably better off just admitting it. Like, if you had nothing to do with this, but you were like, yeah, I was smoking crack in the weeds, you should probably just tell them you were smoking crack in the weeds. I wish I wrote this down, but I'm going to have to explain something else to y'all later. So it reminds me when I say something about, uh, you'll, you'll know, you'll know. Wait, okay. was he smoking crack in the weeds? Bitch, Probably. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing. You it, Amanda. <laughs> there is nothing that says that he was smoking crack. Okay, okay. back to the story. He said that he had lied about his confession, but was so scared that he signed the papers anyways. He also said that Dummett spoon-fed him the information about the red airplane flying overhead when he dragged the bodies. Although after his confession, Uyghur was given a hearing to question its validity, but he never mentioned being beaten nor threatened. His lawyer was present at the time, so he should have been comfortable doing so, but regardless, a physician tested him to say that he had no signs of physical trauma. Uyghur was brought on trial on January 20th, 1961. Robert Richardson was the new state's attorney and in charge of prosecution. He was assisted by none other than Anthony Recuglia. The trial, which quickly gained exposure nationally, was presided by Judge Leonard Hoffman, and because the the prosecutors never tried a murder case before, he suggested that Harland Warren be named as a special prosecutor for this case and this case only. Richardson and Recuglia decided to file charges against Uyghur for only one of the three murders. The reason for this was that in the event of a mistrial or an acquittal, they could still file charges against him for the murder of the other two women. One of the women also had a few pieces of hair in her hand. Uh, I don't know why I put this here. This really doesn't line up. Maybe I just kind of threw it in at the last minute, but it doesn't really line up with the details of this. But One of the women had a few pieces of hair in her hands, and they did not match Chester Uyghur. However, the jury never heard of this because the prosecution did not turn over the evidence. The famous case 
something versus Maryland that said that um, prosecutors have to turn over all of the evidence that they find um, was not determined until 1966. So the prosecutors, Recuglia and Richardson, were not, they weren't, um, oh, what is the word? They didn't need to turn over the evidence. They weren't required to. That's the word. Anyways, back to this kind of timeline that I have here. Um, I'm on March 4th, 1961, almost exactly a year after the murders and on Chester's 22nd birthday, he was sentenced to a term of life imprisonment. However, there are some people who believe there are still questions about the case unanswered. Many people, including David Recuglia, feel that the evidence was that was used to convict Uyghur would not stand up in court today. His prosecution, his prosecution largely turned out to be based on his confession, which predated the Miranda rights that are required today. Others question how a small, slight man like Uyghur could have overpowered three middle-aged women and proceed to move their bodies by himself to leave them hidden under a rock overhang. It seems unlikely that Uyghur would have done it by himself, so why not mention the other perpetrators? Another suspect pointed out in the documentary was that of the owner's son at the time, Carl Walther. When looking up his name and even his father's name, Ferdinand Walther, I could not find any information. However, I do remember from the documentary that shortly after the murder, the documentary stated that Carl left for boarding school. And this is what I wanted to kind of say earlier was that, I mean, the documentary didn't go into a lot of specifics about this, but Carl was a bigger built man and it would have been easier for him to move those bodies and he maybe could have helped um what's his name uh not what's his name he could have helped Uyghur but there is no evidence that points to that and as I said when I looked up his name couldn't literally could not find anything or anything about his father, other than the fact that his father had purchased the Starved Rock Lodge in, I think they said, I don't know, some sometime in the 1900s. Um, this this story is like what? It's all over the place. <laughs> it I know. is. I know. It- yeah. It makes me think back to the the lipstick killer, where it's all the fuck over the place. There's no consistency. That's what I was just thinking. It's very convoluted and just hard to follow. There's a lot of this, then this, and this, but this, and this contradicts this, and this contradicts this. I'm sorry. I'm I'm trying to, like, (laughs) explain all of the, like, because everyone has a different opinion about this case when they hear about it. Because, I mean, there is so much evidence stacked up. And there's also so much that can contradict that evidence, but there's also, I mean, you know, like he was, he was tried obviously. So there's, I I don't know, there's just, there's so much 
stuff about this case that I'm just trying to get to in like six pages, which by the way, I'm almost done. Um, but yeah, just, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's one of those things you can tell that a, whoever was over this case had no idea what was going on. And they were, it feels like they were reaching at straws, but also on the flip side, I can see the other side of it as well, where he might be guilty. I don't know. Chester Weger was incarcerated at the Statesville Penitentiary in Joliet and was moved to the Illinois River Correctional Center in Canton. In November 2019, after 24 tries, Chester Weger was granted parole and has since been released from prison to a halfway house for elderly former convicts, serving a total of 58 years behind bars. That's Damon, a long time. Yeah, yeah 58 years. Yeah. I know. I mean, hey, he was sentenced to a life in prison. So that's, I mean, he's, I think he's 82 this year. He was 22 when he was convicted. So actually, well, about 59, 58 to 59 years. Because he was convicted. No, it was 58 years. Yeah. He was convicted in 61 and he was released in 19, 2019. So did he maintain his innocence while he was in prison? I'm about to get into that. Oh, maybe I don't say it. Maybe I deleted it. Yeah. Um, since he, since that day that he recanted his statement, he has claimed his innocence over, it's been 60 years at this point, over 60 years, 61 years, actually. Well, March. So, Yeah. Almost 61 years. David Recuglia, the man who produced the documentary, believes this could be due to the fact that his father, Anthony Recuglia, passed that year, who encouraged the Board of Pardons and Parole to keep Uyghur locked behind bars. Apparently, uh, Recuglia, Anthony Recuglia, um, literally went to every single... Um, parole hearing that Uyghur had and convinced the board of pardons and parole to keep Uyghur locked up because he, the, the only reason he did this though, was because he solely believed that Uyghur was guilty. I don't think he would have done it if he, I don't think he would have done it if he didn't, but he truly believes that he was guilty based on the evidence that was given. That just kind of makes me worried, though, because it kind of makes me, like, wonder, like, do you really think this man did it and the evidence proves that? Or do you think the evidence proves that this man did it? Does that make sense? Yeah. Are you trying to fit a puzzle piece where it does not belong? Is he trying to fit a puzzle piece where it does not belong? I was not asking you, Amanda. I was just asking the general public. The world doesn't revolve around you, Amanda. (laughs) Yeah, that's what's wrong with it. Yeah. (laughs) Amanda, can you please get your shit together? We don't don't revolve around you anymore. Um, If my doctor can't get my shit together, what (laughs) makes you think that I can? We're still trying medicines. We'll see. Um, I did not mean literal shit, but that's (laughs) fine, too. (laughs) Anyways, um, 
the reason that I was really excited to present this case was one, because that documentary was uh, published. What What's the word for movies? Released? Such? Released, yeah. The documentary was released so late in 2021. I think the last one was actually released in December of 2021. And this next statement. LaSalle County Judge Michael Jans, and I hope that I'm pronouncing that right, ruled on October 26, 2021, that hair strands, twine, and some cigarette butts can now be tested for DNA results. This might finally prove Uyghur's innocence or lack thereof. I Do really I hope it does. What? I hope it does. I hope it. I hope he's innocent. I really do. I, I, I do too. Him. I really I don't do. Know. I mean, there was he was twenty two at the time, and I tried so hard to like present all of these facts, just you know, within a certain amount of time. But I mean, it. There's just so much that. There's so much that just doesn't make sense, you know. I mean, play devil's advocate here, and I'm gonna say I hope he was guilty. That way, we can say we did not send an innocent man to prison for that long. That yeah. yes, uh, like I want the both the best of both worlds. I don't think we will ever get that with true crime. Um, but we will because DNA results, and we will get. I'm pretty sure they're supposed to come out in like March or something. Um, you know, and then there's going to be like an entire court hearing over that. And, you know, they'll have to get prosecutors and judge and judge and a lawyer for Uyghur. But I'm hoping that. He had a daughter, right? Before he went to prison. Two young children. Yes. Two young kids. If, if he is innocent and they sent him to jail for 50 some odd years. I hope he I hope his kids never have to work a day in their life for having to live that long without their father for no fucking reason. I would hope so, but also again, I just I, I hope he's guilty so that we we can say it was done. Like obviously if he's innocent, I don't want it to come back false or anything, but like the best of both worlds, we're not gonna get it because he's an elderly man now he's not getting any redemption he's not getting any of his life back if he is guilty or if he is innocent mm -hmm. so it kind of sucks for him yeah he might clear his name but ultimately his life was stolen from him or he's guilty and we don't feel as bad for sending him to prison for that long and a lot of times you know we see in these cases like look at damian Eccles in the west memphis three like even if Okay, that might be a bad example, but even if you are cleared or you are done with your jail time or whatever may happen in these stories, your name is never really cleared unless you just change right. it completely. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's literally an 82-year-old man at this point. Like, his entire life was taken away from him. I mean... Well, exactly. That's Think that's... about... Yeah. Think about, like... Literally, I'm 22. Think about, like, if I were to go to prison, like, tomorrow for a crime, re regardless if, I mean, I'm not saying that I committed a crime, y'all, but I committed a crime. I killed someone. I went to jail. That's still 60 years of my life. 
Plus, I wonder what I can do with this audio. Um, stop, y'all. Stop. <laughs> no. Okay, but but you've got to say oh, like again that I'm kidding. You've got to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and I'm fine <laughs> oh. with it. I'm fine with it. Anyways, but it sucks too for these women who you know, like, thank God, whatever this DNA evidence shows, I hope that they can get justice too, them and their families. Right. But the sad part about that is that they can only test whether it's a positive or a negative result. They can't test, oh, I'm, well, I mean, they've got like a database or whatever, but they can't necessarily test someone who isn't in the database, you know? And well, right. That's common for everything. I mean, they might be able to partner with uh, like DNA testing places that like eHarm, mm-hmm. not eHarmony, that's dating. Um, 23 and me. I think yeah, 23 and me. 23 and me. Yeah. Because yeah. didn't they do that for the Zodiac Killer and they finally brought mm-hmm. him to justice? Yep. So they can potentially do that as well. Yeah. Wait, was it the Zodiac Killer? It was the, uh, the California the Strangler. State. No, it was, uh, the, it was the Golden State Killer. Golden State Killer, thank there you. There we go. We can get names. Jesus down. God. Okay, we're gonna go through all these real bad cases, and eventually we're gonna get the one that we're talking about. Yeah, because I was all the way in Boston. Boston when, Strangler. Oh, I was like, when they found out, like who it was, or what are we talking? Because oh Zodiac no, I've never is, been to Boston. It's where I was so confused. Yes, yeah, I don't like their killer. pie. I don't like Boston cream pie, so I don't I've have never had. I've never had Boston cream pie, so. Neither have I. Never been to Boston. Never had Boston cream pie. Yeah, see? Oh, what else does Boston have? Somebody let us know. What, oh, wait, don't they have Boston? sports teams? They have, like, the Celtics? Or is it the Celtics? Celtics. I don't know. I, I watch football. Celtics. Google, what's exciting about Boston? <laughs> 15 interesting facts about Boston. There are 23 I don't care. I don't care. Leave me uh, alone. There are several weird laws technically in place. Can we go there and break all the weird laws? It doesn't tell me what they are. Back to the case. Do I believe <laughs> that Chester Uyghur is innocent? I think that at the time, most of the evidence presented in court was based on his confession, and the prosecution altered their story to corroborate that. Co- co- Corroborate, corroborate that. If he were tried today, I don't believe that there was enough evidence to convict him. The end. Thank you for listening. Have a good day. Goodbye. I'm kidding. Well, not that I want to do this, but I scrolled down and Christmas was once banned from Boston for over 20 years. What the hell, Boston? What is wrong with you? Why would you ban Christmas? I don't know. I'm just telling you. Is there a reason? It says, among the odd blue laws that the Puritans put in place when they blah, blah, blah. All right. So. Oh. Well, yeah. Boston, Massachusetts was like, Massachusetts was like one of the first states, right? So that kind of makes sense. Kind of. Well, it's just the Puritans. The Puritans did it. It was just outright banned celebrating in 1659. And the reasons were varied including holidays, pagan roots. And I'm reading this directly from uh, theculturetrip.com. Where was I? So pagan roots and how it was celebrated. And there was a five shilling fine if you were caught in the Christmas spirit. And then after 22 years. Yes. After 22 years, it was legal again. 
what if I'm just drunk and happy and it happens to be November? Am I going to have to give them five shillings? Yes, five shillings. Please mail those to me. I don't like this. Boston, I have a problem with this. I'm sorry. I scrolled down right as uh, Brie cut me off and saw that. So I was waiting. Oh, you know what? I know what's in Boston. The Salem Witch Trials. Yeah. Okay, let's go to we Boston. Should, we should do something for the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yes. During your story, Cody bought Maisie a little um, like rawhide, bo- rawhide bone. I hate giving the dogs oh. them, but it keeps the dogs busy. And so he normally gets like big ones for our big dogs. So he bought her miniature ones. Oh, that's precious. He, I know. He'll never admit that he did something sweet and soft for our dogs. <laughs> big softy. Hold on. I just hear dogs having a fucking panic attack. Okay, Cody took care of it. Oh, they're having right. a panic. They're not having a panic attack. They're having a I'm excited attack. What what would that be called? A surprise attack. No. <laughs> They're they're excited because they got the bones, right? Well, it just barely started. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So, all right. Well, that was a great story, Bree. Thank you. And I would just like to point out that whenever that those DNA results come back in our public, I will definitely keep y'all informed. But for now, I mean, there there's just so much. There's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of people contradicting the evidence. There's a lot of people saying that the evidence is definite. So, I mean, I can't say whether or not he is, he did commit the crime. Just saying. But. Well, I guess we find out here when they go through that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got a good story for you guys that I was not. Not expecting to get this much information on because it takes place in the 1700s. But boy, did they document the shit out of this. So, we are going to be... I'm sorry, you said that you have no pictures, right? No pictures because it was in the 1700s and all the pictures I could find just were strange and didn't feel very relevant. So I didn't bother with them. Um, So we are going to be talking about the exorcism of George Lukens or what's also known as the Yatin Demoniac. Demoniac. I don't know. I don't know what story this is, but anytime you say (laughs) exorcism, I get excited. So I'm here for it. Like I said, I didn't think I was going to get this much information. I had never heard of this before in my entire life. I was like, maybe I'll just do a couple exorcisms, and I got so much information off of this. I was like, this is enough. So... Maybe I'll just do a couple exorcisms. <laughs> just a couple. No big <laughs> deal. So, George Lukens was born around the year of 1743. I couldn't find his exact birthday, um, but still 1743. Does that hurt your brain, Amanda? We talked about it on our last episode. Where is this at? This is in the UK. Okay. So, he lived in a vil- the village of Yatton. Yaton. I don't know. I'm calling it Yatton. I'm American and it's going to come out Yatton. So that's Yatton. just out. Yatton. We're getting away. <laughs> Sorry. So this is just outside of Bristol in the United Kingdom. He was originally trained as a tailor, but he was also able to make a living as a common carrier, a singer, 
an actor of Christmas mummeries, and a ventriloquist. What is a this common man. carrier? I interpreted a common carrier as like a postman. Okay. Man, I don't so know if that's correct. Yeah. I don't know if that's what it really is. That's what I interpreted it as when I hear that. So sorry if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, please correct me. Whoever's going to correct me. It's fine. Common but carrier he... is, I don't know. I uh, I'm not worried about it. So, I'm most yeah. excited about the ventriloquist. Well, that can come into play a little bit later on Ooh, with I'm some excited. of the skeptics' arguments. Um, but I mean, he was all around. He's a busy dude, apparently, because he was a jack of all trades. So, in his younger years, his neighbor neighbors described him as just being like a good kid from his childhood. He attended church and sacrament, and like he he was just a good person. Like nothing wrong with him. From what I could find, he was part of the Catholic Church at the time. I don't know much about religious history at that time, so I'm assuming that um, that it was Catholic. I don't know. Point is, is that I know what he was not, and I'm assuming he was Catholic. Now, <clears throat> in the 1960s, it is said that he was performing a Christmas mummery, and an invisible force threw him several feet, and when he awoke, he claimed that he was now possessed by seven demons, and this is where he gets the title of Yatin Demoniac. So, whatever happened, oh. he calls it, and this is a quote, is that he states he felt a divine slap, he fell to the ground, and then woke up just possessed. So, I mean, there's that. A divine slap. I'm gonna use that. <laughs> Next time I need to threaten my husband, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to come at you with a divine slap. It's better than it. a bitch slap. It's a divine yes. slap. <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, I, I didn't quite know what that meant, but I went, you know what? He does. We're going to go with it. Um, and as soon as the next day he started telling people, like, there's seven demons possessing me right at this moment. And... People are kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. There's seven demons possessing you. Whatever, George. And they kind of just laughed him off. And he began seeing some symptoms. So some of the things he started seeing was general lethargy. Uh, lethargy? Lethargy? Lethargy. 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 Okay. Yeah, I got you. Okay. <laughs> I read that with my phonics phonetic right there <laughs> really well. So what they mean by the lethargy is that he was getting sluggish in his movements and like his steps and his motions were becoming very sluggish. Most of the places that I saw or most of my sources said that his skin was growing pale. And to that me, to me, that means that he was looking a little sickly because like, you know, when you get pale, you typically are sick. And this is a quote from multiple of my sources is that he had an agitation of the right hand. I guess his right hand was very agitated and angry all the time. The color drained or faded from his eyes until his entire eye was almost entirely white. He began having seizures or fits. He also began speaking in tongues. He began using voices that were certainly not his own voice. Um, and most of the time when they saw him using these voices or heard him using these voices, he would actually be in physical pain. And he also was making frantic movements that could be like a seizure, 
But most of the reports said he would have like a giant smile on his face during one of these episodes. Oh, no. The movies that I've seen about exorcisms, those are literally the definitive signs of someone who's being possessed. Um, I mean, that's kind of creepy, but how do we... He is a ventriloquist, so he's able to project and change his voice without moving his lips. But is he able to change the color of his freaking eyeballs? I would say contacts, but I don't think they had those... (laughs) In the 1700s? Uh, I don't think so. I wasn't alive until the 1700s was almost over, so I'm not, like, can't speak on it that well, but I... Bitch, you are not 200 years old. You don't know my life? Shut the the fuck up. Don't don't (laughs) let her tell her story how she wants it told, okay? Now, people have called his seizures or his fits. This is another direct quote, again, from multiple sources. Fits of an alarming nature. <laughs> I would assume it's because he's smiling during these fits. I don't, I don't know. Also like keep in alarming mind- for me or alarming <laughs> for him. <laughs> Both. I think keep in mind, he's also an actor. So he's a ventriloquist and he's an actor. So I- I'm just throwing out the skeptics points of view right there. Anyways. So one witness had said that they initially saw George's first fit and it was while he was performing at a Mr. Love's home. And he basically, this witness said, uh, he was drunk. He had some beers. He got a little wasted. I don't think they used that terminology, but I kind of hope they did. If someone wants to send us someone with a British accent saying wasted, I would really appreciate that. Anyways, point is, is that he was drunk. And this witness basically says, like, he was so drunk during this first fit, he had to be taken home by neighbors. Like, he wasn't able to do it on his own. Oh, I would party with this man. Yes. Um, well, actually, no, I would not. You'll see why. But he was starting to get those seizures again, or not again. So he was getting those seizures or those fits just more and more and more and more throughout his life. Um, and people would say he made, like, weird animal noise, specifically, like, a dog barking. I, I don't know. And he would also argue with himself and he was also acting more violent in general and they said that the fits would begin and end with and this is another quote because this is they're all quoting all of these as well a strong agitation of the right hand what does that mean no i need to know i guess to me it's like his right hand gets really tense and starts like freaking out. And then that's the last thing to stop freaking out. I don't think it's that violent, Brie. I just think it's like, I think you just like violent. I don't know. Are you balling into a fist or are you bitch slapping people? What kind of, he is, there is demonic presences. So I'm kind of hoping it's bitch slapping people and not just balling it into a fist. Cause that's not as boring. Like if the demons are going to have fun with it, have fun with it, you know? Yeah. You mean it's not as fun. You said it's not as boring. Right, but have fun with it. If you're gonna bitch, or if you're gonna have agitation of your right hand, bitch slap someone. Have fun with it. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so more witnesses say that Lukens couldn't hear any virtuous, um, speech or expressions without being in pain or in horror. What? And he continued. Virtuous, like religious. Okay. Okay. So 
he he really tried to continue living his life and whatever but his need for medical attention just kind of kept growing more and more apparent and i couldn't really find if this was a local doctor that initially diagnosed him or if he went to a hospital and got this diagnosis and they later recanted that but he was initially diagnosed with oh Sydenham's chorea chorea i don't know what this is Sydenham's um which is a very rare disease so this is a direct quote from rarediseases.info.nih.gov i don't know how trustworthy you are but i'm trusting you and it's it says it is a dot gov but it's also a dot beforehand so i don't know what that means I can't help you. There's a lot of dots in this. But point is, I got it from Rare Diseases, which is a website. But Sydenham's Chorea, Chorea, I don't know how to say it. I didn't look that up. Sorry. It's a neurological disorder characterized by rapid, jerky, irregular, and involuntary movements, especially of the face and limbs. Additional symptoms may include muscle weakness, slurred speech, headaches, and seizures. So it definitely kind of matches what's going on so far far with him um and one of the things that the doctors were like well it's probably this or one of the the triggers to point them to this is that he i guess george was getting chronic throat infections which would lead to uh, rheumatic fever which would potentially cause this so he was getting these throat infections getting romantic rheumatic fever not romantic fever <laughs> rheumatic fever and then that would cause like a flare in this Sydenham's. But again, this is like an exceedingly rare disease. So that's what they initially um, diagnosed him with. Now, according to a Reverend Wake, which is the, the Reverend or the, I think, parish is the correct word for uh, where the hell? Yadin. The parish or the community basically came together. The church was able to raise money to send him enough or to gather enough money to send Lucans for medical attention in London. So he ended up at St. George's hospital in London. And according to the hospital records, he was initially admitted on May 3rd, 1775 and discharged on October 8th, 1775. I went through and counted that. And that's about 22 weeks, a little over 22 weeks in total. Um, he wasn't treated with like kit gloves, like it was something that could spread. He was allowed visitors. He reportedly didn't experience any seizures while he was at the hospital, at least in one source. And doctors at this point just kind of dismissed the possibility of this being the Sydenham's, whatever. And the doctors at the hospital were not able to solve his epilepsy, and he was basically pronounced incurable. I mean, they had a surgeon who cared over him, and the surgeon wasn't able to do anything. <clears throat> Additional doctors even said that Lukens was, and this is another quote, afflicted with a grievous hypochondriac disorder. So he was a hypochondriac, according to some doctors. My little brother has that. Yeah, so I, I don't. I'm the opposite of that. I'm like, eh, we'll see how I feel in the morning. If I'm dead, I'm dead. It's fine. Same. Like, I don't need stitches. I don't have to go to the doctor. I know my finger is missing, but it'll grow back, right? Like, Mine did. <laughs> it has to be reattached. Right. Um, but where was I? So 
One doctor prescribed him. Oh, I should have Googled these terms and how to say them, and I did not. I apologize. But one doctor prescribed him uh, laudanum. L- laudanum? I don't know. Laudanum. Laudanum, sure. Uh, okay. It's an it's an alcoholic solution. Again, this was take. I think I Googled this, and I just pulled up, selected, typed in the first result on Google. That says it's an alcoholic solution containing morphine, prepared from opium and formerly used as a narcotic painkiller. So, I mean, they were just drugging him up and it apparently wasn't helping with his illness because even though he wasn't having seizures, he was having other symptoms still. Um, even with heavy doses of this, there he just didn't see any relief. <clears throat> According to Dr. Samuel Norman, to prove that George was bewitched, he gave... Oh, I lost my spot because I scrolled down. Sorry. So basically, he was trying to prove that he was bewitched, and he was getting some people involved. Uh, and it's believed that during his time with the doctors, he was seeking the help of what they called cunning folk or magic practitioners to cure him. So he very much thought there was something up that was not natural. Now, one of the women, this woman was specifically from Bedminster, she prescribed to him, she's one of these cunning folk, um, she prescribed to him to roll up a brown paper with pins driven in it and then burn it in a fire during his fits, and that would help cure him. I'm going to try that. (laughs) I don't know if that's going to work for Annie's fits when she's old enough. She might just be a little confused. I'm still going to try it anyway. I'll let y'all know. I'll keep you posted. Okay. Um, other cunning folk stated that it was indigent, indigent, indigent. Whoa, that was a hard word for me. And infirm old people who had bewitched Lucan's. So basically they're saying he's cursed. And Lucan's, he very much believed it. Um, he believed that he had seven demons in him for quite some time. And he wasn't sure if it was... Like a typical, I guess not a typical possession. But he wasn't sure if someone like bewitched him to cause the possession or what. So he he was just so convinced that this was caused by magic. Um, that he even attacked an elderly, elderly woman in an attempt to draw her blood. Does it tell me what he was trying to draw her blood for? Nope, absolutely not. So I don't know. Now, after his hospital stay, he did return home to Yatin, where he stayed with his brother for quite some time. Um, when he returned home, the voices became stronger and a lot louder and more audible and clearer. So he could be found at times singing in strange sounds. And it said it was similar to a language, but not a known language. So it did sound like he was speaking something, but they didn't know what, and he didn't know other languages. And they eventually believed that he was singing all two hundreds of the Te Deum in its original Latin, but inverted. So he was reading the words backwards, like, so the lettering was backwards, the word and the sentence, everything was backwards. So, and the Te Diem, from my understanding, is like a religious, almost like a prayer. I'm not religious, I don't know. That's what I got from it, but he was reading it completely backwards. Again, George didn't speak other languages that I'm aware of, and he definitely didn't speak Latin. So there is one source that his brother wasn't able to deal with George's, I guess, attitude. 
possession. I don't know. He wasn't able to deal with George, and he just was like, all right, you're moving into the house of Richard Beachman. Beachham. Beachham. Um, and I don't know the relation between these or if this is accurate. This is just one of many sources that said he did this. And according to that source, George lived in the Beecham residence and all of his fits went away. Like he was not having fits anymore. Nothing. And even a decade after he had moved out of the Beecham residence, he still hadn't been having fits. And they started all over again a decade later. Now, in 1787, either his fits returned or they never left. Again, it's not clear on which is the accurate source. But at this point, he's 44 years old and he's having these fits or seizures. And on June 7th, 1787, a witness describes an event that left them in a, and this is a quote, a state of horror and amazement at the sounds and expressions of what they heard. That's a quote that you can find in almost any article you read about this. So they heard something. Do they say what it was? No, but it left them terrified. And eventually, uh, Sarah, Sarah Barber from a nearby village or community, she was a member of the Temple Church. She had heard or met Lukens from her husband or from visiting Yatin. Her husband was originally from Yatin, where Lukens is residing. And she was able to sit down and talk with Lukens. And before, I guess not before, between his different fits, she got some information from him. And he told her that he was a vessel for seven powerful demons guided by the devil. And he also explained that only the power of the Trinity invoked by seven men of God could end his possession. So I'm not really sure how he knows all of this, but he does. He also told Sarah that that can never be done. And the reason is because it's not just a normal demonic possession. It's demoniac, which is different than being just possessed by a demon. So the best definition I could find of it basically says that he was not just a vessel, but he was a gateway for demonic entities. Oh, he's fucked. <laughs> yes. And somehow he believed that he was containing the seven demonic entities in him and not really opening a gateway. But that's that's different between the uh, demoniac and a demonic possession is just yeah. gateway versus vessel. So good old Sarah, she goes and she approaches Reverend Joseph Easterbrook on May 31st, 1784. Um, my dates are off on here. Oh no, my things are just out of order. So she visits Reverend Easterbrook and she's asking him for help. And she said, she, she told him like, I saw this man. He just was afflicted with the craziest thing. He would scream and sing in weird sounds and never sounded human. And the fits to her knowledge, he had had trouble with for almost 18 years. Um, and they call them medical gentlemen, not doctors. And she said that a bunch of medical gentlemen had tried to diagnose him and help him, but nothing helped. And the people in Yatin just thought he was bewitched and something was wrong with him in that. And that he himself had declared he had seven demons in him and that he had to have seven clergymen or men of God pray for him or exercise him. 
Now, I don't really know a lot about the Bible, but this, it's explained that there's a significance of him having the seven demons in him because of the New Testament assertion that Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. I forgot to research that if we're going to be completely honest, I was going to. So if anyone knows what any of what I just said means, that'd be great. Go ahead and email us because that went just right over my head. But um, Easterbrook, he met with Lukens because he's like, all right, well, now I got to see if you really are possessed or not. And he met with Lukens several times to determine if he was. And he was like, yeah, you're for sure he's possessed. And <clears throat> just like that exact today, quote. Yeah, you're for sure Z's possessed. You're for sure Z's possessed. So we should probably fix that. Uh, Yes, that's exactly what he sounded like. He said it in a female voice and all. So Um, Reverend Easterbrook, he he got a bunch of different priests together. And those involved Reverend, Reverend Richard Sines, Reverend Robbins, and Reverend James Brown. They got together and they all were like, oh, yeah, he's certainly possessed and they were basically drafting up their argument as to why he needs to be exercised and just like in today's day and age they have the church has a set of standards that you have to meet and you have to get approval to do an exorcism um and unfortunately the petition or the novel or whatever the hell they created was denied because the church told them no you're not doing an exercise exercise exorcism you're not doing an exorcism for him you're not exercising and, your exorcism. Nope, you're not doing it. So, because they needed church authority, he was kind of like, well, now what? He decided he didn't need church authority, and he he basically was like, well, I'm going to take this upon myself, because this dude really needs help, and we're going to get him the help he needs. And he starts reaching out to a bunch of other priests, even reaching out to uh, Reverend John Wesley, who is an Anglican priest? Like he's going to different, different churches basically. And uh, Reverend John Wesley is one of the founders of the Methodist movement, so he's part of the Methodist Church. Um, Wesley did decline to participate, but we know that he was so desperate he was reaching outside of his own church for these contacts. So he was legitimately trying to get this guy help. Yes, and he was able to find six other priests to participate in an exorcism. Because he did believe he needed seven priests, one including himself. Um, one for each demon. Yes. One priest, who is Reverend John Walton, had known Lukens previously and wrote this of him. And this is another direct quote. Um, and it said, I personally knew him, a youth about 18, short in stature and meager in aspect. He had, free- he had frequent fits or proxisms. And was sometimes affected like the Pythoness, or rather like the Furies mentioned often by uh, Herodotus. 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 I can get that word. I can get words today. Um, And ancient writers. He was cruelly distorted and uttered foul language, but was often heard to say that he should be delivered if seven ministers should pray with him. So, I mean, this John Walton knew him prior and this is like him saying straight up like yeah he needs help and reverend john Walton met with him again before the actual exorcism and he questioned if he was fit to do this he's like i don't know if i have the faith to encounter a demoniac 
And I just am hoping for the best is basically what he was getting at. On Friday, June 13th, 1787, Reverend Easterbrook and the six other priests, along with seven witnesses, gathered in Bristol. And the participant list is Reverend John Easterbrook, Reverend John Broadbent, Reverend John Walton, Reverend Jeremiah, Jeremiah Brettel, sorry, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Brettel, Reverend Benjamin Rhodes, Reverend Thomas McGeary, Reverend William Hunt. And then the next ones are the witnesses, and not all of them have a first, actually none of them have a first and last name listed. So we had J. Lard, T. Delve, Reese, Deverell, Tucker, and Guire. I don't know if they just were shortening it because no one cared about the. Oh, and uh, Nathaniel Gifford, the only one that had both names. Um, I don't know if the priests were like, no one cares about you guys. We're the important ones. But these guys didn't really have their first and last names on there. Why was Nathaniel special? I don't know. Maybe he's like he number one witness. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe he, he was have... not a minor. I don't know. I just know the articles, like, very few of them had information even about who the witnesses were. So, you know what? I got what I got. If I was now, Tucker, I would be pissed. <laughs> Tucker? Is it because Nathaniel Gifford was like, yes, I'm, I'm listed in here? Yes, I'd be pissed I just be because able. Jay Lard is in there. At least, he at least gets his first initial. I don't but. know. I don't. I don't think these priests were being very fair to the witnesses. Could, I don't know. The witnesses might have chosen not to have their names published aside from Nathaniel. I don't know. If I see something like that, I want to fucking talk about it. Like, let's chat. <laughs> well, they do perform their exorcism, but they're not performing a Catholic exorcism. They're performing a Methodist exorcism, which very closely resembles the Catholic rites in a lot of different ways. So they have the adjurations, the commands for the demons to depart, to depart. They sing uh, hymns and say prayers. Um, now, the exorcism that they did, all of the exorcism and rituals that they did were expressly, expressly rejected by the Church of England at the time, as well as other Protestant denominations. So they were kind of really, they're like, you know what? Fuck it. They told us, no, we're going to do our own thing and we're going to do these rites that nobody likes. So. That is what they did. Now, <clears throat> when they begin the rites, they report that George Lukens very calmly speaks in a very powerful voice that ha no one had previously ever heard before as one of the seven demons. So they were like, well, where did, where's this eighth demon coming from? What the hell is happening? And oh, it's God, we're a pretty short. <laughs> I guess. Well, there are seven witnesses. Do they count? I don't know. Can <laughs> they... Can they do the exorcism? Like, can you get a de Sir, Mr. J. Lard, can you please get this demon out of this man? I don't know. I don't know if they count. Um, maybe it was just all of them speaking at once. I don't know. But it speaks directly to the clergyman, and it states that it's going to torment George Lukens more, like, a, it specifically expressed a thousand times worse for trying to attempt an ex exorcism. Poor George. Now, priests, they begin singing hymns. Uh, Lucan's face begins distorting while they're singing the hymns. I wouldn't say to him. I would say at him. Um, his body begins to spasm, you know, as they do in exorcisms. Uh, and he was subject to strange agitations 
They didn't really say what that was, but I can only imagine it has something to do of with the that. right hand. Yes. <laughs> Agitations of the right hand. Um, he began speaking in like a deep, hoarse, and like with a hollow tone. He would claim to be under the influence of an invisible agent. So he's saying, I'm not doing this. So I don't know what's happening. He would shout blasphemies in other voices, but the voices could be both male and female voices. Oh, that's creepy. And he would sing and laugh with these different voices. He would also declare himself periodically throughout the exorcism to be the devil. So he also vowed eternal vengeance on the miserable objects and those presents for daring to oppose him. That is another direct quote. Um, So basically he's whatever is in him is not thrilled. He commanded his faithful and obedient servants to appear and take their stations. So I'm assuming that means the seven demons that are in him are supposed to appear and take their stations. I'm assuming they didn't appear because I didn't see anything about them appearing, but they were told to. What they um, like are within his body? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is this like a Megazord type thing where they each control a specific piece of the body? Like this guy's got the the right arm and all its agitations and this guy's got the left arm. I'm not sure if it's a Megazord or if they just take turns controlling him as a whole. I'm not. It doesn't tell me. But I really hope that it's whoever had that right hand was agitated because they had the right hand. They wanted the head. (laughs) (laughs) Don't really know for sure. But they say that he became so violent that two fully grown strong men did struggle to hold him. So he was like exhibiting a lot of strength and stuff like that. And the priest prayer, prayer, the priest prayed and Lukens did sing the Te Diem backwards again of course uh to the devil in different voices and these different voices would also say we praise thee O devil we acknowledge thee to be the supreme governor now reverend mac mcgeary had abjured the devils in greek and in latin which i googled what abjure means did i write it down absolutely not but it basically means to leave um but according to the priest he he basically was pretending that the devils were so unclassical and he was just not replying to them. He was like, you guys are so dumb and lame, like come up with your own shit. And he was, it sounds like he was trying to agitate them a little bit. And one of the priests demands that Lukens speak the name of Jesus. And instead he would reply with, I am the devil. So they also heard a faint voice that would, they thought, said, why don't you abjure back to them? And, you know, crazy things just happening. And the priest would command Lukens to say the name of the Trinity. And they were demanding that the evil depart. And Lukens would swear by his infernal den that he would not leave. So that's coming out of Lukens' mouth. Um, let's also respond saying, must I give up my power? Like, they're like, uh, no thanks, this is my power. And really, just still just getting weird, and Lukens at one point begins howling like a dog, um, and he, eventually they hear one of those voices shout out, our master has deceived us, where shall we go? 
So something down under just happened, and I don't know what it was, but someone betrayed someone, shit's going down. And when one of the priests heard this, they shouted back to hell and returned no more to torment this man. So, I mean, at least he has a pair. And after two hours of them doing these prayers and rites on George Lukens, George Lukens announces in his own voice, blessed be Jesus. So he can now say Jesus without being in pain. And he does some different uh, rites and rituals of religious nature to prove like, hey, I'm, I'm not possessed. And so um, he says the Lord's Prayer and they're like, cool, we did it. And they depart ways. Uh, Why do I feel now, like this isn't the end? Well, the priest did try to keep this away from like the public eye and prying eye, but they didn't do such a good job because they were in the vestry, which is just like the office or changing room area. I, again, I'm not religious. I don't understand any of this terminology, um, but that's where they performed the exorcism. And it was so loud for almost two hours that it drew a crowd. And so word spread. And within just a couple of days, word about this whole exorcism had spread across the country. Did they do this on a Sunday or like probably a Saturday at the time? No, they did, the it just... they did it on a Friday. They did it on a Friday, June 13th. So with them releasing or getting this like this notoriety, I guess, about it, um, it brought a lot of skeptics and criticism to the forefront. Many of the medical gentlemen uh, said it was a hoax and that Lucas had tricked the clergy. A lot of their arguments are that he is an actor. He also is a hypochondriac. He also uh, is a ventriloquist, so he is able to project and change his voice. And a lot of ventriloquists are able to mimic a male and female voice. So that's where that male-female voice could come from. So they really just push back and be, they're like, no, 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 no. This is not that, no. And Reverend Easterbrook, he's like, you know what? I'm going to stop your rumors and I'm going to tell you guys what happened. And him and the other clergymen get together and they actually publish a story of the event with how we know what the reported events are. So, again, where is it? So he wrote this, the, the possession was authentic, and I'm going to send you guys a link, so if you want to look at it, because I did find the copy of their writing online. And if you guys want to read what Reverend Easterbrook said about it, you guys can go and look at it. Um, many of the witnesses, ooh, that is, no, that is right. So they release this and they're like, okay, this is what happened. But a lot more witnesses start coming forward and they're like, uh, no, his early fits were when he was drunk. And oftentimes he would be drunk or he'd be like going into a fit while he's waiting to be paid. And then as soon as he has the money in his hand, he would stop. So those are some of the early witnesses. I, I don't really know. But all of the reverends involved very clearly assert that this was a true case of, um... What you sent oh, to us is not a link. It was supposed to be. So they all say that it was supposed to be, uh, or supposedly a very true, um, occurrence that happened. And after this, after June the 13th, he really kind of fell off the face of the earth. He... There are some reports that he took off to Bristol because he loved Bristol so much. And he just said, I'm never coming back to Yatton. There are other reports that says he was forced to stay in Yatton 
even though he wanted to be in Bristol, but he lived in extreme poverty because he lived off of the parish and he was kind of the town weirdo at this point. Um, there was an article published about his death in 1805, but there were no details about what caused his death. So there's that for you. That is the story of the exorcism of George Lukens. And that's all we know about him. Just the exorcism. I don't know if I believe this or not. Like, I want to believe this. But most of the time, I'm like, okay, why would this person do this? You know, like, it's obviously not for, in his case, it didn't seem like it was for publicity or for anything like that. However, if he's a hypochondriac, that could potentially be a reason. I would think if he was doing it to get, like, the attention, he would have stayed in the spotlight much longer than what he did. So. I can see that, too. I, I don't know. I'm torn because I do believe exorcisms can be real. I don't know if they're that dramatic. Um, yeah, because well, I mean, he's given, you know, a usual exorcism would only have one demon, right? And he had seven in him. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Jinx, ten. Yeah. Counting to 10. I don't know why I yell 10 every time. I do that to Cody, too. I yell, <laughs> I yell jinx and then 10 at him every single time. I, <laughs> I know my camera's not on right now, but I was literally looking at you like, what the fuck is jinx 10? Like, it sounds like a it, game, like Uno <laughs> slap or something. Well, Cody and I, we had to count to 10, so I count to 10 super fast, and I really just yell 10 at him. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where that 10 comes from and i'm so used to just yelling it at him that it comes out at you too <laughs> but i still got the jinx and that's what matters <laughs> what were we talking about we were talking about george lukens and if we believe oh. that this was a hoax or not yeah if he's an actor i could see him doing this for some kind of publicity regarding that yeah and to my knowledge he was like a, a paid actor like people paid him to act and sing and dance and i don't know do all sorts of things so it's not like he wouldn't have been good and he was at least halfway decent i should say and he was a ventriloquist so again he could potentially project his voice and do different voices i don't know if he were an actor and he were trying to get publicity for being an actor i feel like he would have come out at least like later in life and said Hey, no, I acted all of this. This all was fake. You Not know? in the 1700s, no. Oh, yeah. I guess you're right. Well. No, not in the 1700s. No. I very much feel like he faded into obscurity after that. And no one knows what happened other than he died in 1805. And even the obituary doesn't say how he died. We just know that he either went to Bristol and fell off the face of the earth. Or he stayed in Yatton and lived in poverty. But the ob obituary that they could find, from what I could see, was from Yatin. So, I don't, I don't know. I just, it seems like if it was for publicity, he would have just ridden that train a lot longer. I mean, I guess 18 years is a long time, but I, if it was for publicity, I wouldn't live in poverty and I wouldn't fall off the face of the earth. True. So it's hard. And again, he could have just been a hypochondriac and felt a little under the weather and portrayed some demons in him. I don't know. He probably that's actually probably what happened. Like he come down in the 1700s, he came down with like a minor 
cough, or I think you said something about like uh, having throat irritation. And he Googled it, and WebMD told him that he was possessed. I don't think Google works the same, because I'm Not pretty sure it had to be then. word of mouth. So he probably just went to his neighbor and said, hey, I have this. And they said, hey, I heard about a person 16,000 years ago that also had this. You should probably just act like you're possessed, because you are. You should but probably also, just go get a priest. Right. Also, it's possible that he had epilepsy with his seizures um and he could have very much portrayed the epileptic uh seizures that he was having in different ways it's very unclear and it's also the 1700s so story i honestly didn't say much because i was just like so into it <laughs> yeah and like i said i was going to i thought about doing multiple exorcism stories cuz i was like oh this these will probably be really quick cuz they're like 1700s 1800s there's not going to be a lot on it and this one had a shit ton of stuff on it um and i also love a good exorcism yeah i also read the um that link that i sent to you guys and i read the, the what they wrote or what uh reverend easterbrook wrote and i mean it's pretty crazy and it's like a scanned old document so you can tell it's not new point is is that it was very interesting and i was not expecting to go on a crazy ride like that well i'm glad you did oh it was a crazy ride it was a crazy ride for us too so that's that's what you guys get from me so i hope you guys enjoyed that one i like the exorcism stories i think they're so interesting maybe i'll do a story that's Gives more details about exorcisms in general. And pictures. Yeah. I'm sorry, it was the 1700s. There were no pictures. They could have drawn it. I guess. I don't know for sure. I just, I don't know. Point is, is that one was a wild ride. Very nice of him. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm ready to have a break and not do another double recording. Even though I know we have one in a couple weeks for me again. But thank you guys all for listening to Hell on Heels podcast. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hell on Heels podcast. We also have a Facebook page. It's not very pretty right now, but we'll get that fixed here soon-ish. If you go onto our Instagram, you can also find our link tree. And that is where you can find all the links to all the things, such as where you can link to us, pictures, Twitter, all that fun stuff. Please email us at hellonheelspodcast at gmail.com if you have your own true crime or paranormal story, or if you just have suggestions of what you want us to talk about next. We are open to suggestions. Amanda's going to need all the cannibalism suggestions she can find. Please send them her way. Going to need all the doll stories she can find. (laughs) I've got plenty of doll stories, don't you worry. Big shout out, as always, to James for creating our intro music. We do appreciate it. Also, again, thank you for letting us uh, steal you on your birthday, which in right now time was yesterday. Or still Amanda on her your birthday. I don't know what I'm saying. Point is, is thank you for making that for us. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you can. I know on Spotify you can now rate us. So if you could go ahead and give us five stars, that'd be wonderful. As well as on iTunes iPodcast, whatever it's called. I'm not an Apple person. And if we're not on your preferred listening platform, please let us know and we'll work on getting those episodes up on those different platforms. And this has been Hell on Hills. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.